This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. When a gunman opened fire recently inside a Texas church, killing 26 people, Carl Chin of Colorado immediately hopped on a plane. He didn't know anyone in Sutherland Springs, but they shared a connection, one that he says has changed his life. The former building engineer has formed a nonprofit, Faith-Based Security Network. Its goal? To help houses of worship prepare for and prevent acts of violence. Carl, welcome to the program. Thank you, Nathan. Why did you decide to go to Texas in the aftermath of the shooting? What's the connection here for you? Well, Nathan, I have walked all these more deadly sites. I've um, walked the Birmingham, Alabama, 16th Street Baptist Church a few times. That's really where all this began in 1963. Hmm. I've been to Charleston. I've been to Dangerfield, Texas, Oak Creek, Wisconsin, Waddell, Arizona, all the places where these have gone down. And you always learn something additional by being there right on the heels of such an incident. And my message is whatever I can bring back to help other churches do their planning better. I bring back lessons learned. Why is it so personal for you? Well, and, you know, it, it didn't used to be. I I uh, tell people when I speak at events that I don't have a law enforcement background or a military background. And I was a building engineer at Focus on the Family. And uh, as part of my duties there, I... I um, worked with engineers as we developed different components of the buildings, and and uh, some of that was security systems. And then I was always glad to get them in and installed and then go back to my other more important things and let the security guys deal with the rest of the stuff. But it became personal to me on May second, 1996, because we had uh, only one security guard at the ministry. and uh, the idea was that he would be backed up by members of my facilities team if there was an incident that happened. And May 2nd, 1996, there was an incident. We had an angry gunman come in and threatened to blow the place up and took hostages, and and, uh, the security guard and I both wound up becoming two of the four hostages. And after that incident. I was the spokesman for the ministry in the trial that followed, um, worked with the assistant DA in getting good convictions on him. And quite honestly, Nathan, that's what changed my life. That was my wake-up call. Now, was this all at Focus on the Family? That was at Focus on the Family, uh, May 2nd, 1996. And because of that, when I left Focus on the Family in 1999, I continued working in the construction industry and and uh, uh, office furniture and different things of that nature. But on the side, I was researching and writing on this subject of church security. And finally, about uh, 2002... Um, March 7th of 2002, actually, is when I launched into it on a more full-time basis and started consulting churches. And then in 2005, it became very obvious to me that my own home church had no security 
planning, and so I went to the administration, and they told me I wasn't the first to mention it to them, that there were some law enforcement officers that were also concerned, and we came together and started uh, pioneering a security plan for New Life Church out on the north side of Colorado Springs. And uh, so I was part of that committee of, of folks that put that plan together, and then I was there the day the killer came. And to New Life Church, and you saw that uh, that incident, it really impacted you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was very up close and personal to that. Uh, I watched Gene Assam make the shots uh, that took the killer down, and uh, she stopped him there in the hallway, and uh, it was quite a remarkable thing that she did. Um, now, and, now it- uh, is that why you have this connection with these families? Because you're you're visiting with them at such a raw, emotional time, maybe just days or less after after the incident. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And one of the things that I shared with the rest of our team at New Life because of what I had learned at Focus on the Family is I, I sent out a team email right after it went down and encouraged all of them to say nothing and uh, I told him there's going to be a lot of dust in the air and uh, immediately after an incident um, it's like explosive dust in the air people who've been close to each other and maybe weren't even at the at the scene and uh, may or may not be connected to it by relatives who died or were hurt but it affects the entire community So part of the reason I went to Sutherland Springs was just to sit at the tables and have uh, conversations with community members. And uh, because of that, made some really, really close, I feel like, lifetime friends. Some who were dealing with things that their family members had been through there inside the sanctuary, and many of them told me, stories that were just too close and personal to to write about. I do write, but when they give me those close, hurtful stories, that they're, they're doesn't kind of just, go on my website. Just for you, it sounds like. They're just for you internally. Now, now, well, they're just those are just for them. Well, right, in that sense. But that personal connection, that, that isn't going to become public. Right. Were you worried when you first got there that, that the law enforcement or, or church officials in Texas would say, like, who who is this guy, and why is he asking for information about these victims and to see their families? Not not too much. Um, I, I pretty much know how to speak to most of the law enforcement and, mm-hmm. and the other, other families. I only had one embarrassing thing. I tried to go to a justice of the peace to find out when they were going to open up the church, and he... he Basically, I, I didn't introduce myself right. He thought I was there to to uh, capitalize on it or something. I don't know. But mm. but most of the conversations were very good in Texas. Now, the New York Times reports that 15 years ago, a mass shooting took place every two months. Now it's every two weeks. In their reporting, Catherine Schweit, a retired FBI agent, says one of the problems preventing incidents like the one in Texas is that people are hesitant to notify law enforcement about concerns with family members. And she compares it to the See Something, Say Something campaign used to fight terrorism. Do you think these shootings are akin to domestic terrorism? Oh, I I think uh, a domestic 
um, attack like this, and this was domestic abuse spillover, I think they're very akin to domestic terrorism. There's a very thin um, dividing line between terrorism and domestic abuse. And, I mean, this guy <clears throat> shot, uh, started shooting in the vicinity of the only exit door up towards the front of the church. So uh, he was inflicting terror on people thinking that the killer was outside that door hmm. and uh, continued shooting through the walls as he walked towards the other doors and came in them shooting. So he knew what he was doing. He'd been there on Halloween evening and many times before, and he wanted to inflict terror on top of killing. You say that in nine, that since 1999, you've tracked more than 1,600 deadly force incidents at houses of worship. What trends have you seen, and what can they teach people trying to prevent these things? Well, I want to tell you, the, the first news call I got um, after the Sutherland Springs shooting was just about two hours after it had happened, and at that point didn't know anything, and, and the reporter that called me asked me what my questions would be, you know, what I was looking for to come out of the news. And I said, well, the first two things I'm going to be looking for is what was, uh, did this attack start on the outside or on the inside? Because my statistics have shown me that you're two to one more likely that people are going to die outside than inside or that the attack is at least going to start outside if it doesn't go down in its entirety. And when I began tracking these things in 1999, I had no clue what what these the answers were going to show me. But that's one of the things they've shown me, is that it's time to have a guard on the outside of your building. The second thing that I told that reporter was, I'm going to be interested in the trigger because, and when I say trigger, I mean the motive because most people died at a church last year because of domestic abuse. That's the number one killer in a church. And I would absolutely agree with Catherine Schweit on her comment that people aren't saying enough. They absolutely need to be, when they see something, say something. And the clergy in the church always has a stumbling block there because of the clergy penitent privilege. And they feel like everything that they hear should not be spread. And and I get that. I understand it. But when there's violence, people need to know about that violence. When there's a restraining order, people need to know about that restraining order. And the right people need to know. And that's the people who are intervention capable should that person who the threat is concerning shows up. And you've also said that when it comes to these deadly force incidents, houses of worship are more in denial than other businesses or organizations. Is that part of the denial process that you're speaking of? Oh, absolutely, without a question. I mean, all Americans or most Americans are in denial. We walk into a Walmart and don't think anything's going to happen. Most of the people listening to this broadcast right now, if they think back to their Walmart, they don't know where the exits are. Um, because they don't walk in with that that mindset. But, but, but in, in a overall, church, I mean, it, 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 these are these are rarities. Still, this is this is not a, a, a common thing overall, right? Well, if it happens in the Walmart you're at, the statistics don't matter. 
The fact of the matter is people live in denial, especially in a church. Have churches become more aware in the 20 years since the instance at the focus on the family? Have things changed overall? Absolutely. How churches so? Are becoming, churches are becoming more aware. Um, the, the question of should we have church security was still a question um, even among the larger churches just 15 years ago. Uh, now I don't think there's very many large churches that haven't really understood that they have a responsibility to take care of their congregation. For a preacher to say, when God wants me, he can call me, that's fine. For anybody that wants to say that for themselves, that's fine. You can make that decision. But when you've got people in your congregation, children and others, you have a responsibility to make sure they're safe. But there is that line between the the sanctity of a church and, let's say, metal detectors and guards at the door. I'm not talking about metal detectors. I'm not talking about guards that look like they're secret service. I'm talking about simple awareness. Uh And your church security team should be the friendliest people in your church. They should be the people, if somebody asks the pastor who's the friendliest people here, he should point to the security team, or like I like to call them, the safety team. They're not there looking like uh, the royal guard. If they are, they're in it for the wrong reasons. They're just people who love the folks in the congregation and have the ability to see something that doesn't look right and then know what to do when they do see something that's not right. And that's the main main crux of your of your uh, mission, it seems, to find those those people and to kind of allow churches to, to utilize them. Is that right? That is absolutely correct. You... How would you change church buildings to be safer? You're a former building engineer. You've done this for for a while now. Let's say a small church is looking to build a new church. How how would you make that building safer for them? Well, Nathan, that's a, a great question. And one of the things that I would say is increase your budget for security-related items. Uh, budgets are high for fire-related because it's driven by building code. But to use the school example, there hasn't been a child die in a school fire since 1958. Not a single one has died in a fire in a school since 1958. But schools continue to do fire drills. They continue to uh, install all kinds of nice systems, and that's good. I'm not saying they shouldn't. Uh, But the only reason they do, Nathan, is because they're forced to by code. Now, how many children have died in those situations because of an active attack of some sort or another? And uh, one of the first things I tell churches when they're building a new building is their door hardware. Take a look at classroom security lock. It's a different type of function of lock where the teacher doesn't have to. Yeah, it can be locked from the inside. It can be locked from the inside. That is correct. And and so changing and, something as simple as door locks would make a difference in your eyes. Absolutely. And uh, then, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of time, a lot of money on things. You do need to budget for that more so than in the past. I'm a believer in cameras. I'm a believer in electronic access control systems. I'm a believer in 
and locks uh, that control the doors. Even where I'm recording from today, the studio that I walked into, that has no vulnerable children in here, but just has vulnerable equipment, has a lock on the front where you have to push a, a button and get granted in. And churches tend to think we've got to be open. Uh, and and while there's some open that's that's necessary, you at least need to force folks through a point of entry and uh, then reduce those points of entry during times that um, you don't have large congregation there. So just think about how easy it is to get into your facility and manage that. And and final question here briefly. Do you have these discussions with, with, let's say, leaders of the church who may have a different view, that we do need to be more open, we do need to be more accepting, and this feels to be restrictive to to maybe what they're, they're preaching? Those are my favorite conversations to have. I love it when somebody says, I don't believe this, and uh, we're not going to change anything. And one of the scriptures I bring up to them is Matthew, the sixth chapter, where Jesus told us not to worry about what we eat, drink, or wear. But that doesn't mean clothes fall down on us out of heaven and we get manna and we get sprayed by a heavenly mist. We have to be intentional about the things we buy to wear, eat, and drink. And the same is true for security. I believe God protects us. But I also believe, like Nehemiah said in Nehemiah 4.9, we prayed to our God and posted a guard. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Carl Chin of Colorado Springs runs a nonprofit faith-based security network that works with houses of worship to prevent deadly force incidents. Chin says he's tracked more than 1,600 such incidents in the last 18 years. He joined us from the KRCC studios in the Springs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. If you were a kid in the 90s or the parent of a kid, you might recognize this theme. Bill Nye wanted to get kids excited about science with his TV show Bill Nye the Science Guy. But now he says he's talking to adults about climate change. In a new documentary that looks at Nye's rise to fame and his fight against what he says is anti-science thinking, he visits Greenland. There, Jim White, a climatologist at CU, shows Nye the effects of human activity on the planet. Bill, Jim, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Now, Jim, to show Bill the evidence of human-caused climate change, you take him to an ice core lab in Greenland. Snow falls every year and you get layers and layers of ice, but you're like pages in a book. And as we read this book, we learn more and more about the story of our planet. What evidence is collected from ice cores that, in your mind, proves humans are causing climate change? Well, I think ice cores give us the basic baseline um, information uh, that we need to make that connection. Uh, In ice cores, you can find greenhouse gases. And in ice cores, you can find temperature records. And we can put those together and show that when carbon dioxide goes up, temperatures go up. And when carbon dioxide goes down, temperatures go down. It's, and as I say all the time, there's nobody running around under the ice sheet in Greenland with a hypodermic needle squirting bubbles of ancient atmosphere into the ice. It's just not how it is. Bill, what was it like seeing the melting ice caps firsthand? Well, it's, it's, 
it's creepy. And, and uh, frankly, it's exciting. I mean, it, it's just I have been talking about ice cores in my public talks, like at colleges, for over 10 years. And so thanks to Jim, I finally actually went to see where they're extracted from the actual ice. It was really something. And then I've been reading about and seeing air photographs of receding glaciers for years. And to be standing right across from the toe or the end of one of the glaciers and watch it fall apart before your eyes is troubling. And frankly, it's exciting. I mean, there's tons of ice. The piece of ice, that the big piece that fell while we were standing there is probably 100 feet high, probably weighed, I don't know, 30 tons, 40 tons. The white ice reflects a lot of sunlight, but as the ice goes away... As the glacier does stuff like that, uh, it's exposing bare rock and uh, is warming even faster. You can clearly hear your emotion watching this happen in, in real time. You said it was creepy, but, but also exhilarating. Well, it just whenever you watch a natural, it's like a waterfall is exciting. It's, it's just your heart goes to your throat. I mean, you're, wow. But when you realize intellectually what you're seeing, the world warming at this extraordinary rate, it's, I hope you find it a little troubling. Well, yeah, you're, more than you're, a little. You're watching sea level rise which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Is that why you wanted this trip to be in the documentary, to have that visual cue for for the the viewers of this film? It wasn't my decision. I signed an agreement. I have no creative control over this film. And yes, there's a part in the middle where I want to blow my brains out, but uh, I've gotten through it a couple times now. (laughs) I'll be all right. So it was the producer's... They made the decision to hope to get to the Greenland ice sheet, and Dr. White here, Jim, enabled us to be there. It was really, it was one of the most exciting things I've ever done. Because this documentary is about you, Bill. It's uh, about your rise to stardom and how you've become this lightning rod, if you will, for the climate movement. Uh, Jim, why do you think it was so important to get Bill and viewers to this particular place on Earth for this documentary? I think it's helpful for people to go and actually see how the science is done. And um, I thought it was a tremendous opportunity as an educator to bring up somebody um, in Bill Nye who uh, is, is a tremendous uh, communicator of science and show him firsthand. Um, this is how we do it. We dig a, a, you know, a, a big pit in the, in the uh, ice sheet itself. It's cold. Um, the equipment is impressive. Uh, the conditions are harsh, and um, but it's it has a certain kind of beauty to it. Um, I th- I think it was a, an opportunity to uh, for both the film crew and for Bill to see firsthand the incredible changes that are going on in the Arctic today. Well, is that concerning to you that people are not experiencing this type of thing with their own eyes, and and that could be fueling what you mention in the movie as quote an anti science movement. I think that's a. I think you're right. I mean, I think it's a very uh, good insight. Uh, the Arctic is a long way away. Um, it's not easy to get to, and and people think that what happens in the Arctic doesn't affect them. They're wrong about that. What happens in the Arctic does indeed affect them. The folks in Miami are watching sea level rise because Greenland is melting and going into the ocean. So the connection is there, but we don't think about that uh, connection. Um, we don't 
actually get up there and, and watch what's going on. As I said, the Arctic is, is undergoing incredible change today. And if you talk to the folks in Canada or Alaska, they will tell you uh, that they see it. Um, but their voices are, are not loud, and, and they don't penetrate down here into the lower 48. Speaking of Colorado and the lower 48, is there effects of climate change that, that you're seeing here that you can say, students or, or people, it's right here? It is right here. I was just uh, working with uh, a group called Protect Our Winners, which is a boulder-based uh, uh, advocacy group uh, made up of uh, professional skiers and snowboarders, gold medal kind of folks. And they are very uh, concerned about the fact that we've lost a couple of weeks in the fall and we've lost a couple of weeks in the spring to Colorado's ski season. Um, that is money and that is fun. And um, you, we're taking away both money and fun. Um, we are also in a situation here in Colorado where we're going to have to think seriously about fire issues in the summertime. We're going to have to think seriously about how do we... Um, are we going to build more reservoirs? Because snow is a free reservoir and we're trading snow for rain. So climate change is very, very real here in Colorado, both in our faces um, and in your pocketbook. Keep in mind that, you know, we all, we're all part of this big country and uh, we have trillions of dollars of assets along the coast. And uh, we're not going to be immune to helping to pay for that as sea level rises. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel, and I'm speaking with scientist and engineer Bill Nye. You may know him as Bill Nye the Science Guy from the 1990s TV show. Jim White, a climatologist at the University of Colorado, is also here. We're talking about a new documentary about Nye, as well as how people view climate change. You say, Bill, there's an anti-science stance that is growing across the world. What makes you say that? Well, the president of the United States... And his vice president have said succinctly that they don't accept climate change. Uh, the vice president in the film, you see him saying he doesn't accept uh, evolution as a proven scientific uh, theory. And that's those, those two ideas are plainly wrong. And it's the fossil fuel industry that has been very successful in introducing the idea that scientific uncertainty, plus or minus 2%, what have you, is somehow exactly the same as doubt about the whole thing, as plus or minus 100%. And when I state it in that way, everybody, of course, 2% does not equal 100%. But the fossil fuel industry has managed to essentially put that in a great many people's minds, including our current leaders. But people are so entrenched on these issues. Do you hope to change minds here or or, or what? The ultimate would be to change minds. So. Yeah. Jim, you haven't seen the film, right? No, I haven't seen it yet, no. So I take on uh, everybody's favorite, Joe Bastardi, who is a longtime climate denier or contrarian. He's a meteorologist, and he does not accept the influence of increasing carbon dioxide levels on a warming world. However, he has a son, and I believe when you watch the movie, you can see how conflicted his son Garrett is. And I believe this is, or he represents, the future, that as the climate deniers of my age get older and age out and stop voting and become a minority, young people who were raised with concern about climate change will get to work and make sweeping changes in the way we produce electricity, clean water, and access to the Internet. 
for everyone on earth. So you see it as a generational thing, it sounds like. I want to talk about the fact that in the documentary, Bill, you're pretty open about how some of your work has seemed to actually fuel this anti-science fire. You debated Ken Ham, a well-known creationist who's opened museums that show things like humans and dinosaurs living side by side, because he says the Bible proves the world is only around 4,000 years old. His interpretation of the Bible says that. that. That is his interpretation of the Bible. But Jim, in the documentary, you say that you believe in God, but that people don't have a choice when it comes to believing in climate change, unlike believing in God. There seems to be a real tension there. The tension is there because physics um, is based on, or our universe is based on, unbreakable rules. Uh, Gravity is gravity. Uh, I just flew in an airplane today, and I'm very thankful that the gravitational constant is indeed constant because the (laughs) manufacturer of an airplane can figure out, you know, how fast it has to fly and how to shape the wings and all that stuff. All that technology depends on um, the dependability of things like um, vibrational frequencies of atoms or gravitational constant. This is how the the whole system was created. And when we think that it's not going to be constant, um, as I tell people, have you ever woken up in the morning, uh, plastered the ceiling of your bedroom on one of those no-gravity days? And the answer is no. It doesn't happen. We, we understand at a very basic level that our universe has predictability to it because of the way that the system functions. And as an educator, as a professor... It, this is the one thing that really drives me slightly crazy is that um, people will say things like, I don't believe in climate change. And I will tell them, well, wait a minute. You don't get to believe in climate change any more than you get to believe in gravity. And Bill, final question for you. Some of the criticism you receive in this new documentary is that you're not, quote, a scientist, that you've hosted a kid's science show. It's something right-wing politicians have repeated to try and discredit you, that you have a degree in mechanical engineering. That's physics, people. That's all I did was physics. What do you want from me, man? I used to have a job. I have a license. But you're hearing that over and over and over. Hey, mechanical engineering is science. I'm sorry. It really is. No, it's it's all classical physics. So yeah, uh, suppose I had a associate's art degree in education. The climate's still changing. <laughs> you can shoot the messenger all you want, but the climate is still changing. So I've been doing climate change demonstrations since uh, well, the one I published in 1993 in my first kids book. That uh, I've been w- concerned about this for quite a while, over 20 years. And we've hardly done anything about it. Now, this is, I believe, almost entirely because of the fossil fuel industry and their amazing success at introducing doubt that that somehow your opinion, one's opinion, is every bit as good as provable scientific facts. And that's that's just not true. And it didn't used to be that way. You know, the reason the United States sent people to the moon and invented the iPhone and the internet, and is raising crops uh, that enable us to feed 7.4 billion people where we used to feed one and a half, uh, is because of science. And so I think the pendulum is going to swing back really fast once the deniers age out, as I like to say. Now, is there a uh, an opportunity, do you think, for discussion between uh, your view and, and the views of some who say climate change is not a real thing? Or does that 
bring up a false equivalency. Well, I don't think there's a debate there. I mean, we don't, there's no debate in terms of, of physics. There's no debate in terms of, of what we understand is the basic climate system. I think where the debate is, is uh, what do you do about it? Um, how do we uh, move the needle, so to speak, uh, in terms of getting people to be more interested in this, in term, to take it seriously, uh, to vote with that in mind? Um, and, and what do we do about it? Um, there's a lot of, of rather difficult pieces to this equation. Um, for example, because 70% of the earth is covered with water and water takes a long time to, to heat up water, a watch pot never boils. Um, what's going on today is basically we're just warming up the ocean. And once the ocean's warmed up, it's going to stay warmed up for a long period of time. Uh, this creates a, a, an intergenerational problem. I mean, what we're doing to the planet today, our grandkids, my grandkids, are going to have to deal with. And there's, that's an unfair situation. Um, but it's difficult to get people to think beyond their generation. But until we do that, we're not going to be able to deal with this issue. Jim, Bill, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jim. It's good to talk with you again. Good to talk to you, Bill. Bill Nye and CU climatologist Jim White are featured in a new documentary called Bill Nye Science Guy. It opens this weekend in Denver. See a trailer and photos at CPR.org. More people in Colorado means more people heading to the mountains. And that's kept mountain search and rescue teams very busy this year, including Rocky Mountain Rescue, which has been around for 70 years. CPR's Stephanie Wolf takes us to Flagstaff Mountain near Boulder to learn why. What looks very much like a zip line stretches across a ravine near a popular picnic area. There's more than a dozen people wearing climbing helmets. A woman is strapped into a metal stretcher. Do you feel free? Do you want this? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Get my phone for a selfie. <laughs> <laughs> She's obviously not hurt. This is a training exercise for Boulder County's Rocky Mountain Rescue Group. Experienced members show trainees how to move an injured person in difficult situations. And it takes a real understanding of science. For new members, I have my high school physics book. And I use my high school physics book to teach people um, about various aspects of things that we do. That's Jeff Sparhawk. He's been involved with Rocky Mountain Rescue for nearly 30 years. The science has to be right every time to keep people safe. And safety is the priority. They'll drop everything when that call comes in. If we're around, we're ready to go. And that's just the way we live. And we're ready to see each other at 3 o'clock in the morning on some mountainside. And that's, that's okay with us. Rocky Mountain Rescue is one of the oldest volunteer mountain rescue groups in the country. In the winter of 1947, a number of deaths in the wilderness of Boulder County, including a young girl, had people on edge. The sheriff's office led mountain rescues back then. Soon after, they met with mountaineers and some CU Boulder professors and students to form a specialized team. Tom Hornbein joined that team in 48. He says in the early years... A lot of it was spent just developing, teaching ourselves... Oh, rescue lowering techniques and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. Hornbein was a mountaineer and recalls one of those early trainings. They're up in the Flatirons near Boulder. And some woman down near Chautauqua happened to be looking up and seeing a rescue going on up there and called the sheriff's office 
whom we had failed to inform what we were doing. The sheriff asked to be kept in the loop about future trainings. Coordination became key. Today, the Rocky Mountain Rescue uses a lot of the same materials, things like ropes and metal stretchers. The biggest advancements have been in communications, through the use of portable radios and cell phones. The group has grown to about 75 members. Kristen Gruca of Boulder hopes to join the ranks. She's been attending trainings and says signing up was a no-brainer. I love helping people. I love the outdoors, and being able to combine the two is just kind of perfect. <laughs> the need for mountain rescues is on the rise. In 2014, Rocky Mountain Rescue received more than 150 calls for help. Last year, it climbed to nearly 200. Jeff Sparhawk says this is true across Colorado. The state park, the national forest, uh, all the land managers are preserving these, uh, these land areas, and that draws people like crazy. If you plan to venture outdoors, the group says bring a map, a compass, a flashlight, and plenty of food and water. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. There are more than 60 volunteer search and rescue groups in Colorado, and Rocky Mountain Rescue is one of the busiest. These groups don't, don't charge for their services, but a rescue can cost quite a lot, even tens of thousands of dollars. So who picks up the bill? Here to explain is Irv Halter. He's the executive director of Colorado's Department of Local Affairs. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Oh, thanks for having me. So who picks up the bill and why? Well, uh, one, the the locals pick up a lot of the bills, so local sheriff's offices, uh, things like that. But as uh, you just mentioned, there's a lot of volunteer organizations out there. They cannot uh, obviously uh, afford to do all this for free. It takes equipment and things like that. And so we have a program uh, within the department. It's been established 30 years ago. It's called the Corsar Card Program, and basically allows uh, folks to buy the cards, and those monies that are collected from that are then used uh, to help reimburse these uh, these organizations. So state lawmakers created this search and rescue fund, but there was no actual funds tied to it back then, right? That's correct. So, you know, and that, that happens along the way. So the, the uh, program has morphed to the program we have now where we sell uh, both online and at various outdoor recreation organizations uh, these Corsar cards. Now, I want to make it very clear that this is not an insurance card. Uh, it, if you get into trouble uh, while you're out recreating, uh, the search and rescue professionals and volunteers are going to come find you and take care of you, and that's what they do. Uh, but this fund source allows uh, citizens to put money into a very discreet fund that is used only for this purpose. It doesn't go into the general fund. We keep good tabs on on it and are audited regularly, and we make sure that the money gets to the organizations that do this kind of work. So essentially, it's it's a it's a card saying, you know what, I'm going to put some money behind this if I'm going into the wilderness or maybe mountain climbing or something like that. Absolutely, and as the uh, the previous article said, uh, it. We have a huge number of people coming to the state, uh, about 90,000 growth per year, about 60,000 of that is people who move here. And just like the rest of us who already are privileged to live in Colorado, they want to get out there and do things. Unfortunately, uh, they can run into difficulties either because they weren't prepared or things just happen. You twist an ankle, you can't move, uh, you know, some more severe things happen occasionally. And so with all those folks out there, this is an opportunity for them to buy the card. Uh, you know, you can print it out if you want or you don't have to. It's $3 for a year. It's $12 for five years. I have my card. My wife has hers. Uh, but it basically is an opportunity for you to help reimburse these folks who are always on call to help you when you're outside. 
isn't there also a surcharge tax under certain outdoor licenses as well? Yes, there are things like that as well uh, across the thing. But we gather that money. Uh, it it changes year to year. We do a lot of we've been doing a lot of work to advertise this more, and the numbers have gone up. It's about three hundred twenty five thousand dollars a year that's been coming in on average. Uh, it doesn't sound like a lot, but again, uh, when you're talking about training for volunteers, just basic basic equipment, it goes a long ways. How is that money distributed? Does it all go to things like the Rocky Mountain Rescue Group, or how does that that pay on it pan out? So uh, we uh, in the Department of Local Affairs have a number of grant programs that do a lot of things, and always we start with local government agencies. In this case, generally sheriffs, departments, and things like that. They can make application for specific missions that they have done uh, and try to get uh, at least partial reimbursement for that. That's where the first monies go, and there are several tiers to that process. But once we get done covering or trying to help cover all the legitimate costs that have been brought into us, uh, then we start start uh, paying for equipment. So any of the leftover money then gets spent on things like ropes and uh, climbing gear. And the, a lot of the stuff, you know, year to year, you have to replace it because it gets worn out. Mm. Uh, sometimes it's uh, uh, all-terrain, small all-terrain vehicles, sometimes uh, snowmobiles, whatever these folks need. And we can't pay for everything that they need. And they come in to a board that advises me. That board is uh, staffed by uh, volunteer professionals, so it's sheriff's offices, uh, folks that are in this build, uh, business, uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife partners with us on this, and that's our opportunity then. They advise me, we make a decision, and then we uh, make the grants. These rescue groups encounter fatalities on a regular basis, and members we spoke with said recovering bodies can take an emotional toll on them, uh, especially those who've been on missions involving plane crashes. Can rescue groups get reimbursed for mental health support for their volunteers? Um, We don't do that directly, but I will say that they get a lot of training. And so that training uh, does include uh, how people deal with this. And, of course, uh, local sheriff's offices, even in small communities, are pretty sophisticated on this. They bring in counselors and things like that to help people through this. Because you're right, uh, what they do can be very, very difficult and emotionally draining, especially if they don't get there in time or find the person uh, deceased. So this funding is primarily, you can also have volunteer organizations ask themselves for money from the public, right? They can, but they'll do it uh, in conjunction with the local sheriff's offices. And and who is primarily being rescued? Are they just hikers? Are they just climbers? I, I know, like you said, there are a lot of people moving here. Is it just tourists as well? It, it can be all those things. Uh, you know, also uh, hunters, uh, people are going fishing. We have a lot of folks who are going fishing that, that fall into something. Our, our uh, state is gorgeous. And of course, uh, to a lot of folks that first get here, they go, oh, I just want to go up that mountain, not realizing uh, that, in fact, uh, that distance is a lot bigger than you think it is. Or uh, maybe uh, the weather's going to change in a way that you didn't see. We tend to think that, you know, the weather forecasters know everything. They don't. Uh, and so, you know, in the mountains, it can change rapidly. Those of us who lived here for a long time know that. Uh, other folks who haven't lived here as long or who are visiting may not know that. More than 1,700 missions were conducted around the state last year. That's up from 2015. And the numbers have been steadily increasing uh, for the last few decades. Uh, you've said that crews will not stop doing search and rescue. They're going to, vol- you know, we're going to help you out if you need it. But what happens with the statewide fund when there isn't enough to reimburse these volunteer groups? Well, that's a great question. That's why we continue to press people to 
uh, buy the card. Uh, that's a way to do it. Certainly, uh, the legislature has all kinds of calls that they have to deal with in, on terms of overall general funds and things like that. Certainly, if if uh, people, I'm not encouraging them to do this, but if they were interested in taking that to a different level, uh, certainly there might be uh, a legislative attempt or even an administration attempt to try to increase those funds. But for now, it works. Uh, yeah, I will say, and I, I commend the volunteers, um, it's hard work, and as you mentioned, it can be very tough emotionally, but they love what they do, and uh, really we all owe them a debt of gratitude for stepping in and doing this because essentially, aside from the equipment, they're doing it for free. And a final question briefly. You say you're not advocating for this to go to, let's say, the, the legislature or up to the administration, but is that something that you would be willing to do if, if things get to that point? Uh, we will continue to watch the program and see how the needs are being made. And if that happens, then certainly uh, we'll talk to the correct people. We have great relationships both with the legislature and obviously I'm a part of the administration. But right now, I think we're, we're in good shape. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Irv Halter is the executive director of Colorado's Department of Local Affairs. We discussed the state's search and rescue fund. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Denver band Tennis have taken many leaps of faith throughout their career. They wrote their debut album while living on a boat at sea. Then they moved to Nashville for a while, and last year they developed their own record label and self-released Yours Conditionally. That risk paid off. The album was their biggest hit to date. Now, Tennis is reflecting on the newfound freedom and control over their work with the record We Can Die Happy. Here's No Exit. band Tennis, whose new album is We Can Die Happy. And that's our show. Thanks to director Stephanie Wolf, audio engineers Michael Hughes and Matt Hers, producers Michael Elizabeth Sackis and Anthony Cotton. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day. <laughs>